Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community, I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. And I'm Mark Dunley. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with an overview of the upsurge in violence between Israel and Palestinians. Then we hear about the Radix Center's upcoming Pawpaw Taysen event. Later on, Election Watch features Dorsey Cunningham Case, the GOP candidate in District 4 for Troy City Council. After that, uh, K.P. Holler interviews Jayana LaFountain about photography, being the doula, and the upcoming event on Saturday, October 14th at the Sanctuary. And we finish up with uh, Andrea Cunliffe's preview of the upcoming Kaleidoscope, A Sonic Journey at Troy Savings Bank Music Hall. But first, headlines. Three Albany police officers have been suspended months after the police department launched an investigation into the payments to officers who worked a special security detail for the Albany Housing Authority. The officers allegedly billed the city for work hours while they were working at the authority. More than 50 Palestinian rights activists rallied in downtown Albany on Tuesday to demand justice for Palestinians who were forced to live in an open prison in the occupied territories. Mark Mishler of Jewish Voices for Peace stated, We condemn the murder and kidnapping of civilians in Israel by Hamas and the collective punishment of two million people in Gaza. The speakers called the United States to cease all military aid to Israel. On Monday evening, hundreds of people filled Congregation Beth Emmet in Albany to show their support for Israel and the victims of the weekend's attack by Hamas. A speaker said the most difficult question for Israel will be how it can secure the safe return of the hostages Hamas took in the attack. The Times Union reports that the city of Troy's police chief testified to the city council's public safety committee that the wireless dashboard cameras in the city's police vehicles can't be counted on to work and the cruisers must yield to other vehicles that have the right of way if those vehicles don't appear to be responding to emergency lights and sirens. However, the chiefs were not able to specifically address the fatal February 22nd accident when Sabi Alal Kawai pizza delivery driver was killed at the Troy police when a police Troy police SUV went through a red light and smashed his car due to pending lawsuits and legal investigation. The TU also reported that a doctor testified Tuesday that Darrell Mount Jr. suffered deadly injuries on August 31st, 2013, inconsistent with the findings by Saratoga Springs police that he fell nearly 20 feet from a scaffold. Patty Jackson, the mother of Mount, is suing Saratoga Springs in his police department, alleging wrongful death. The developers of several major offshore wind projects are engaging in a last-minute push to convince Governor Hochul to support increased state subsidies. It is understood that a majority of the state's public Service Commission are opposed to increasing subsidies. A scheduled vote this Thursday by the PSC may be postponed. A state appeals court on Tuesday ruled that New York's ethics panel can remain in operation as it seeks to overturn a lower court decision that determined its structure violates the state constitution. 
The U.S. Supreme Court has denied a request to halt New York's concealed carry gun laws, allowing them to remain in effect as the challenge continues to go through the appeals process. Finally, a gas leak forced evacuations in downtown Schenectady on Wednesday afternoon. Barrett Street was closed between State and Franklin Streets, while crews repair a line severed in the basement of a building. That's it for headlines. A massive upsurge in violence is taking place in Palestine and Israel following a large attack by Hamas on the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. Many hundreds of civilians have been killed by both sides. Mark talks with Professor Stephen Zunes about what is happening there. We're talking with Professor Stephen Zunes, who is with the University of San Francisco. We've had uh, Stephen on for, for, for decades on various um, shows uh, on uh, October 8th. Hamas launched a major attack on uh, Israel. Many hundreds died, including uh, civilians. Hama, uh, the uh, Israeli government has launched an all-out war against Hamas and killing many civilians in the occupied uh, territories. So, so Stephen, what does this all mean? And how, is this a turning point in this 75-year struggle between uh, the Palestinians and Israeli? It is one of the biggest tragedies, obviously. I mean, this is the, uh, by uh, Israel, which has had a, a tragic history of terrorism. This is by far, by far the uh, the uh, largest uh, uh, massacre of its kind. And unfortunately, I think that the Palestinians who have had many uh, massacres of, the, of, the, of a much larger scale committed against them by Israel are now facing something uh, many times worse as well. Um, whether it actually brings the process forward, I actually kind of doubt it. I think it's a setback. Um, international sympathy was growing more and more for the Palestinian cause, opposition to the far-right government uh, internationally and within Israel itself uh, was at an all-time high. But as a result of this terrorist attacks, Israelis are rallying around the flag and Netanyahu's leadership of uh, the international community is expressing strong solidarity with Israel. And the uh, Palestinian struggle is now being depicted as its worst elements uh, manifested by Hamas, which is only a minority faction in uh, Palestinian uh, politics, uh, but uh, you know certainly has demonstrated has the means to uh, in inflict uh, some horrific violence. To be honest, I, I've not been surprised by the uh, Democrats in particular, you know, rallying around all-out defense for Israel. But I have been surprised, actually, by the number of groups who have been willing to actually come out and, while condemning the attacks by Hamas that, that killed so many civilians, uh, actually make the point that, you know, the 75-year domination of Palestine, especially the recently turned in them, the occupied territories and open prison uh, is the root cause of the violence. And there must be, if we're going to get peace and we're going to get justice, it must deal with with Palestine, but you sort of indicated that on the international level, actually, this is a step back for the Palestinian cause. I, I think so. I mean, the, the, it is. Um, we're uh, we are you know you know we're seeing uh, you know solidarity with Israel kind of things uh, all over the place, and you know I am sure in most cases they are just talking about the innocent civilians who are being killed, but obviously there are those that are going to portray it as uh, something bigger than that. And, you know, the reactions in Washington, D.C., of course, uh, you know, even among some of the more uh, small but growing critical 
liberal voices among the de Democrats, uh, even they um, have, have yet to come out in opposition to the, uh, and with a few, only a few exceptions, with the uh, horrendous bombardment by Israel of civilian targets in Israel, we've seen in uh, sorry uh, civilian targets in, in in the Gaza Strip in in recent days. Now we're talking a few hours after uh, President Biden uh, held a national press conference, um, you know, to basically express his all-out support um, for for Israel in this uh, particular conflict. What should the American government be doing at this point? I think that uh, they should. Um, they're, they're certainly correct to condemning the uh, terrorist attacks in no uncertain terms. But I think at this point they, they should be um, you know, calling for uh, an immediate ceasefire and uh, negotiations to um, return the uh, 150 or so uh, Israeli hostages being uh, held, kidnapped by uh by uh, Hamas and being held uh, within uh, Israel, uh, and to start getting serious about moving, you know, towards an end of the uh, Israeli occupation and disarmament of uh, a terrorist militia like that of Hamas. Now, I've heard sort of different assessments as to what the role of Iran may have been in this situation. Um, some said Iran, even though it's one of the major funders of Hamas. Uh, actually has some strained relationships with them. Uh, at the same time, Iran, who remains critically opposed to to Israel, not particularly happy that the United States has been pushing Saudi Arabia to, you know, strike some type of normalization relationship uh, with Israel. What what role can we say at this point that we think Iran is actually playing in this conflict? I, I've seen no evidence that they are playing a particularly strong role. I mean, I think this is kind of the classic uh, case that if there is a, a um, <clears throat> insurgent group of one kind or another uh, engages in violence, the United States denies agency and blames our favorite enemy. I mean, we saw this during the Cold War where every leftist uprising was a, was planned and organized and, and armed and funded and uh, essentially a creation of the Soviet Union. Um, and in this case, you know, uh, Iran does have proxy militias in Iraq and in Syria. They're very close to Hezbollah in Lebanon. They've been supporting the Houthis in Yemen, but um, Hamas, not so much. And they've had strained relations at times. They supported opposite side in the Syrian civil war, for example. And and uh, the the Iran's primary Palestinian ally actually has been Islamic Jihad, uh, which has some operating cells in Gaza Strip, but they are in, in many ways a rival of Hamas. I mean, there's possible some stuff going on that I'm not aware of, uh, but uh, I've, I haven't seen any evidence. Even the U.S. State Department has said they, they see no evidence that Iran uh, was behind the uh, Hamas attack. So, so what can the Palestinian people, you know, do at this point in terms of, you know, Gaza's under this um, all-out, you know, assault, how can they try to protect their lives uh, at this point? And is the United Nations likely to play any role in trying to resolve or de-escalate this conflict? Um, it's it's hard to hard to hard, hard to, uh, to to think of a lot of things. I mean, the uh, Palestinians are, are not in a very powerful position right now. You know, I I think it would it would be quite appropriate uh, for uh, as many Palestinians as possible 
including those in the Palestine Authority and and uh, the leading uh, political parties in the West Bank, to um, uh, you know, be very explicit, uh, more so than they have so far, and uh, and unequivocally condemning Hamas's terrorist attacks. Well, and 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 uh, make clear they are uh, willing to make peace with Israel as long as Israel ends the occupation. In terms of the United Nations. There's a lot of things the UN could do, but every time the United Nations has tried to take action uh, regarding uh, Israel's wars against Hamas, uh, the United States has either vetoed the resolutions or threatened to veto the resolutions and basically had them rewritten in such a way uh, that uh, they really lack any kind of, of muscle or any means of enforcement. So the, the UN, is, I think, is largely um, uh, unable to to take action given the uh, uh united states as a permanent member has the uh, uh power uh to uh, prevent the security council from doing anything so you so have about a minute left the, the not new you know ruling government coalition uh in israel is already under attack particularly on its efforts to basically take power away from the uh, judiciary to oversee some of the political corruption. Certainly a lot of uh, criticism at this point that uh, the Israeli diverted uh, resources to protect the expansion of the people in the occupied territories, which made it easier for Hamas to you know, infiltrate the, the borders. How does the Israeli government in the last 30 seconds manage to come out of this conflict? Well, for now, they're, they're, they're riding high, just as people uh, rallied around President Bush after 9-11. Israelis are rallying around Netanyahu. Uh, you're, you're not likely to see the hundreds of thousands of people in the streets in Tel Aviv every week, as we've been seeing uh, for many months now. At the same time, there's a lot of upset that um, Netanyahu moved the Gaza Brigade away from the border and sent them to the West Bank to support right-wing settlers. Indeed, there are 22 Israeli battalions outside of Israel in the West Bank, busy suppressing Palestinians. While instead of, of of being inside Israel, trying to protect their citizens from this, these kinds of attacks. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Stephen Zunez, University of San Francisco. And this has been Mark Dunlay for the Hudson Mohawk um, magazine. So this has been a horrific situation. And unfortunately, it looks like um, it's only going to get worse with the absolute commitment by the president's really government to just flatten um, the occupied territories. It was interesting that uh, Senator Bernie Sanders uh, from Vermont, probably one of the biggest you know, Jewish politicians in America, I was very, very critical of Hamas's attack uh, a couple of days ago. He also came out today and was quite critical for Israel for violating uh, international law. Certainly in New York, the politicians were all running to um, you know, support Israel. So we'll be following this, including later this week, we'll have a re more report from the recent rally that took place uh, in Albany. Next, we head to the Papachi, which is becoming very trendy. And Scott Kellogg of the Radix Center spoke with Mark Dunley about the Papa tasting test coming up on Thursday, October 12th. We're joined by Scott Kellogg, who's with the uh, Radix Ecological Sustainability Center. And on Thursday, October 12th at 6 p.m., uh, Radix is hosting a paw paw tasting event. Um, so, Scott, what exactly are paw paws and um, what's Radix Center's involvement with them? 
Yeah. So the pawpaw is a native fruit tree found in the United States. Its primary native range is in the Midwest, uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, Southern Ohio, Illinois, but there are stands of it found along Lake Erie around uh, Buffalo. So it is found in New York State as well. Uh, it is hardy to zone five. Albany's is zone six. Troy's is zone six. So it does just fine here. And it produces a really delicious fruit. In fact, the, the largest temperate fruit uh largest fruit that can be grown in a temperate climate the fruit is a kind of looks like a, a mango or a papaya maybe from the outside a little bit it's 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 as big as that but it has a flavor like that of uh i describe it as a banana banana mixed with a mango and vanilla custard together so really delicious and unusual tropical uh, flavor to it so we've had um, uh, a large bounty of, of pawpaws this summer, probably due in part to all the excessive rain that we've got. And on Thursday, like you mentioned, we're going to be having an event at Radix, six o'clock for free for people to come in and taste this fruit. Now, Radix is located in the uh, South End Mansion Hill area. Yes, south end of Albany, 153 Grand Street. Now, I know you've been planting, um, you know, uh, fruit trees in, in the south end, both for climate and as a food source. Did you include pawpaws in, in that? Yeah. If not, yeah. We have actually planted about six of them as street trees as part of the south end biocultural diversity forest. And this is a good example of, of what we you know refer to as assisted migration, where we are on on the northern edge or possibly right outside of the northern extent of their native range. And as plants move very slowly on their own, one way that we can actually help them adapt to climate change is by planting them ourselves. And as we're looking into the future to, to a hotter world, to a particularly hotter urban climate, we want to be looking at some of these uh, more southerly uh, heat tolerant varieties of trees that would do well. Um, so we have planted several of them uh, and also ones that are going to be food bearing. So, uh, you know, it's it's an unfamiliar fruit. It's not a fruit that many people are, know about, but part of this event is to just sort of raise awareness about it and to uh, have people recognize it and, and appreciate it when it, when it does produce food. Now, since... Um... Pawpaws sound, uh, you know, quite tasty. You know, why why hasn't the, you know the American agriculture system more widely adopted it and promoted it as a as a fruit to be sold? Yeah. So the the pawpaw is sometimes also referred to as an anti-capitalist fruit, which is interesting to think about. It has been very resistant to commodification and to mass marketing, and this is due to a number of reasons. One. It's got a very thin skin, so it it tears very easily, which makes it difficult to ship. Uh, it also has a very short shelf life, unrefrigerated, two to three days maybe tops. Refrigerated, you can keep it a little bit longer, but for that reason, uh, it's it's just not going to sit on shelves for very long. And 
it's it takes a long time for trees to bear fruit for our trees at radix probably took about 12 years so that makes it less desirable from um, a perspective of orcharding um and for that reason it's it's really just a, a, a fruit that is best appreciated in a particular time and place which i found to be a very beautiful and grounding experience that is um that's contrary to the demands of uh of industrial agriculture and mass food marketing so at this uh par par tasting event on uh thursday at six you know what will people expect other than hey here's some pawpaws taste it yeah so we'll we'll talk about the plant its history its cultivation really largely spread around the continent by in, in indigenous people originally for whom it was a, an important food source uh we may also get to taste some other uncommon fruits that uh we have right now such as um kiwi berries hardy kiwi um aroni berries perhaps so um yeah we'll see what's in store maybe some surprises hmm so should people consider planting pawpaws at this point and if they are considering it how would they best go about doing that yeah i think they are a great tree to plant they are certainly hardy to uh, the capital district uh, there are a number of nurseries online uh, where you can get them and I'll, I'll point out that the fall is actually a great time to plant trees it might be a little harder to obtain them from nurseries but um this is a good time to get trees in the ground uh we're also um doing uh, cultivation of pawpaws ourselves, and and part of the purpose of this event is to help us uh, separate the seeds from the fruit which is really best done by people sucking the fruit off the seeds to put it crudely and then we collect the seeds and um we're planting them in tree pots and um have a, a number of uh pawpaw seedlings already under cultivation so we are um also you know in the uh, growing these as, as part of our community nursery endeavor with the ultimate intent that we're uh, planting them as as backyard trees and as tree trees so this is also actually uh a seed gathering event then it is it is a fruit tasting and seed gathering event that's a good way to think of it uh we have about three minutes so what else is uh radix center up to that you'd like to share or there's more about pawpaw you'd like to share well um we this week are beginning a nearly month-long cider pressing event where we're going to be having every first grade class in Albany School District coming to the Radix Center at, and using our old 19th century apple cider press, making fresh apple cider, which is a, a you know a great fun thing for kids to do. And these are all locally grown apples, a bunch from Radix, a bunch from um, the Albany Shaker Historical Museum, um, from uh, the Friendship Garden, from Gabby's Garden, from different locations around the city. And um, then we're also going to be teaching them very importantly how to compost the leftover apple pulp. So, you know, fresh cider pressing is kind of the hook. And um, we're also teaching them some sustainability science at the same time. Uh, related to composting, actually, uh, also this Thursday, the same day as the pawpaw event, at 4.30, we're going to be having a composting educational event where we're going to be having hopefully some members of Albany's Common Council coming to to learn about the Albany composting program that we have at Radix and then also Tivoli, Tivoli Community Farm, 
So that's going to be um, at 4.30 on Thursdays as well. So what are some of the uh, common mistakes or failures to take action that, uh, you know, backyard composters, um, you know, encounter when they first start out composting? Not having enough carbon. Number one mistake that backyard composters make is, uh, you know, in composting, we think about our browns and our greens, really the greens being the food scraps and the browns being wood chips or dried leaves or, or dry material like that. And too often composters use too many food scraps and don't add enough carbon-based material. And then they end up with a, a stinky pile, which turns them and others off to the idea of composting. So I always say aim wide with uh, the leaves and the wood chips. Add more than you think you need. And um, the worst that's going to happen then is it slows down the process a little bit. Okay. So when you empty your compost bucket into your compost pile, you should at least match it or double the amount of uh, leaves and other things you're also throwing in. Technically speaking, the ratio is about 30 parts carbon to one part nitrogen. That gets a little technical, but um, yeah, I mean, I would say at least add double the amount of um, of carbon-based material as you do to nitrogen-based material. Okay. Uh, yeah. We're, we're out of time with your website, Scott. Is www.radix, R-A-D-I-X, center, C-E-N-T-E-R, dot org. So come and taste Popeyes if you're interested Thursday, October 12th, 6 p.m. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So I want to thank Scott for exponentially increasing my knowledge about pawpaws, including its status as an anti-capitalist tree. I hope it's joining the union. Um, and uh, for you backyard composters out there, make sure you're getting enough of that uh, leaves in there along with the uh, you know fruits and vegetables from from the from the house um, but for those of you just tuning in I'm Mark Dunley and I'm Sina Bazila Hickey you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk magazine on the Hudson Mohawk radio network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany also streaming online at mediasanctuary.org this program comes from the sanctuary for independent media in Troy New York if you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, coworker, neighbor, or wherever you're meeting there at the bus stop. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Next, we continue with our election watch, looking at Troy City Council District 4. And in this interview, Elizabeth E.P. Press speaks with Darcy Cunningham Casey. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we are continuing our election coverage. We're talking with City Council District 4 Republican candidate Darcy Cunningham Casey. She is the acting commissioner for Rensselaer County Department of the Aging. Darcy, welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Just tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do with the Department of Aging. I am a lifelong resident of Troy. I had worked in the Senate for 20 years um, under Senator Larkin as uh, his executive assistant. Then I um, landed in the uh, Department of Aging, where right now I am acting commissioner. Um, I oversee five centers throughout Rensselaer County. I have about 75 employees that I oversee as well. Um, we have various programs from homes over meals to medical transportation, 
to congregate settings, aid service, to lifeline. Uh, it's a really, really busy department, um, and I, I enjoy it, the compassion. I just love my seniors, and I love serving to make sure that, you know, they're getting the services that they need, and rightfully so. So in the Department of Aging for the county, you actually do get hands-on experience engaging with senior citizens? Absolutely. You know, um, when I first started, I, obviously I did not have this role. I was more hands-on and, you know, refer, refer to them, you know, as clients and whatnot. So I would do, you know, um, go out and do assessments, reassessments, and, you know, um, take a look at their home and make sure everything was, you know, nothing was concerning, that type of thing. Um, and then me to say I started moving on up. And I will say, you know, in this field, you definitely have to have compassion. I'm just very pleased as to where I am right now. So, Darcy, you are running for District 4 City Council. As we said, this area covers mostly downtown, some of Hillside. How are you, you know, getting the word out? And what are you hearing is most important to constituents in District 4 in this time, in this upcoming election? You know, um, I have been uh, participating with Little Italy, going to some uh, activities that they're having there as well. Started hitting the street, going door to door, um, going to various events. And what I am hearing, I'm, I'm sure it's, you know, is safety. You know, everything that's going on um, in the city, you know, and of course, you know, South Troy, North Central as well. I know the city, you know, they are, you know, we're trying to revitalize it. And, you know, I appreciate all that as well. But if you want to have people come to the city, it needs to be safe. For example, a couple of weeks ago, it was, you know, uh, in the evening and outside of I Love New York, people were coming in because, you know, uh, something was going on in the city and shots were fired. So needless to say, they all had to, you know, run into I Love New York and hide for protection. That doesn't set the tone for, you know, welcome, you know, come to come visit us. That's very concerning. Um, crime has escalated. Um, it's resurged. It's just, you know, I'm all about, you know, uh, proper staffing with our police and firemen. That's huge. But I'm also concerned for their safety as well. It just seems like a total disregard, blatant. And I think we need to, you know, have better communication and collaboration and, you know, open forums and, you know, see how we can, you know, come up with a plan to try and just ease people's, you know, concerns when they're coming to the city because the city's bustling. But, you know, when the sun goes down, you know, some people are hopping in their car and they're getting out of the city. And, and I just, you know, the streets, you know, I think we need cleaner streets, um, lots of zombie properties, especially, you know, especially in Troy. I mean, just like right now, the house two doors down literally crumbled when we had, you know, the downpours. And that guy, you know, um, the family that was next to it, the little boy, you know, um, you know, debris came through his window. So, you know, thank God nobody was hurt there. But, you know, again, I can probably pick out, I don't know, this, this block and across, there's probably like four or five zombie properties. And that really needs to be addressed. There's squatters. Um, 
you know, drug use is on the rise. You know, I have an alley behind my house and, you know, I see what goes through there. I see drug use, you know, and it's a lot of mental health. It's, you know, and I just think if we have, you know, more communication, possibly we can try and, you know, resolve as best as we can. Thank you for going into all of those really big issues, Darcy. I mean, we could take each one of them apart, but we probably don't have time for that. But you didn't mention right, communication right. a few times. So I'm curious if you could elaborate a little bit more on how you see communication as part of the solution for some of these big topics here in Troy. So, for example, Little Italy, they hold their monthly meeting. They do have probably about 20 who attend um, Osgood neighborhood is very involved as well. People just getting the word out, you know, come join for the meeting um, and, you know, express your concerns because we're not going to know if you're not going to, you know, elaborate on what's going on. Like, what do you want to see done? How can we work together? And I'm open to, you know, I'm very approachable. I want to say um, my work history is, you know, I'm a little familiar with, uh, obviously, constituent relations. I've resolved many issues when I worked under the senator. Now, as uh, acting commissioner for aging, you know, I, I try to resolve problems on a daily basis, whether it's with the senior population or if employees. So I, I feel comfortable in that regard. I'm pretty uh, excited for, you know, um, the campaign team, which is here. Now, Darcy... You know, you are running against Aaron Vera for uh, District yes. 4 City Council. Why should mm-hmm. our audience vote for you over Aaron? Like I said, um, I had 20 years working under um, Senator Larkin as his executive assistant. I We participated in budget, and now I'm, you know, participated once again in the budget for aging. So, you know... Um, just doing that, I know how to be fiscal conservative, and I know, you know, um, you know what priorities are, um, you know, where we should do the funding, and you know what is uh, what's very important, and you know what, you know, should be on hold. But you know, obviously, services are a priority, and you know, taxes within the city, you know, it's fine, but. You know, the taxes keep going up. Services are not up to par. Let's just put it that way. Um, for example, street cleaning, just for one one example. Street cleaning supposedly is on a Friday on 4th Street. Well, needs to say, they're not even hitting the curb. I've called who, you know, and it's falling on deaf ears. It's, if you're going to do it, do it right. You know, hit the curve and get the garbage. Or otherwise, I don't know why you're running the trucks at all. Um, I know DPW is doing the best they can with the garbage situation. Um, people, you know, with all these fees and whatnot, you look out and all of a sudden there's a mattress. Because nobody wants to pay for the fee to get it picked up. So they're, they're dropping, you know, um, appliances, mattresses in the middle of the night. Um, and then next thing you know, you're getting a bill because it's on your property and then you have to fight and say, it's not mine. And it's just, you know, I just think uh, we need to, um, a little more open communication. That's for sure. 
Darcy, if there's anything I didn't bring up that you want to make sure our audience knows about you before they uh, go out to vote in November. You know, I am a lifelong resident. My family was born and raised here. I've raised two children here. We're blue-collar workers. Um, I have family, police department, fire department. You know, I really do have compassion for the city. And like I said, you know, I see, you know, the city, you know, businesses are trying to come back, but some don't last. And crime is very concerning. And, uh, you know, obviously, I'm sure we all do. We'd like to, you know, um, work on that and see how we can, you know, resolve that and, you know, have, you know, more people come visit the city of Troy. And, you know, take advantage of what we have rather than, you know, leaving off its dust and we need to get out of town before shots are fired. Um, and then, of course, zombie property. That that has to be addressed. Absolutely. Is there anything more you want to say about what we can do about zombie properties? Do you have, you know, some, you know, um, plans to come up and hold them accountable? Absolutely. They're all, you know, I, I shouldn't say they're all, but many are from New York City. Um, who, who own these properties. So therefore, they don't have eyes on. So we need to, you know, th- definitely take a look at that. That's for sure. Uh, Darcy, I super appreciate you taking the time out to talk to us today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you for joining us today. All right. Well, thank you for having me. You have a great day. You too. So that was Elizabeth Press uh, interviewing Darcy Cunningham Casey, uh, Troy City Council District 4. Election day is now less than a month away. Early voting even sooner. Um, we'll be trying to do as much election watch of, of local candidates as we can. You can always go to mediacentury.org, put in the search button uh, to find some of our coverage. And this Saturday, October 14th, we've got a really exciting program beginning with Who's on Your Face workshop and then Black Matrilineage Photography and Representation, Book Talk and Discussion. KP Holler spoke with um, Jayana LaFontaine about what's coming up. This is KP Holler reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Today in the studio, I have with me Jayana LaFountain, photographer and birth doula. Welcome, Jayana. Hi. I met you in your capacity as a photographer, so I'd like to start there. Can you tell us a little about your work? I started when I was like, uh, I want to say 12. The catalyst for me becoming a photographer was my foster mother's uh, passing. She passed like a couple of days before Christmas, and um, I realized like I didn't take enough pictures I don't have enough pictures with her. It made me really sad to think that, like, wow, this person was here and there's not a lot of proof that she was here. And so, like, four days before Christmas, I asked for a camera. I think it was, like, New Year's Eve um, when her funeral was, but I just vowed to, like, take pictures of everything and everyone um, and not stop. So that's, like, the the inception of Jayana La Photos. And then... Um, that love for photography grew and was fostered through Craig Street Boys and Girls Club. Uh, somebody that worked at the Boys and Girls Club gave me like an actual DSLR camera for free because she saw how important photography was to me. Um, and again, we just it, it just kept escalating. It just kept escalating. I don't know how we got here. The older I get, the more seasoned I get. I've learned that my 
purpose for doing photography is heavily rooted in the preservation of legacy, especially for black and brown people and making sure that people know we exist. Um, there's proof of joy and things uh, past all of like the traumatic stuff we see often. Because you were taking photos of birth and people giving birth, did that influence your transition or growth into actually doing birth work yourself? Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. I um, actually told this story the other day. Um, I posted a status on Facebook <laughs> randomly about five years ago. I was just like, I've never documented a birth. And that's something that I want to do. Is anybody willing to allow me like this random photo lady into your birth space? And this woman who I had, I'd never met her a day in my life. She was like, oh, I'm getting induced on Tuesday. And I was like, great. I don't know what that means. I'll be there though. Um, and she was a black woman. She's super sweet. It was her first baby. Um, and I was there in the capacity of a photographer, but she wasn't she didn't have like a lot of support. So naturally I fell into like a support role for her. I stayed with her, I think 27 plus hours, which I was not anticipating. I don't do that now as a doula, like you know, I've learned. But um, I stayed with her throughout the entire process. And, you know, later in the evening, her mother came to give her support, but I was just like, oh, like, obviously I'm going to help you. Like, I'm going to take pictures, sure, but you need your back rubbed, obviously, like I'm going to hold your hand. And um, as like time was going on, she was handling contractions really well. And she was adamant on not wanting an epidural. And I witnessed firsthand what coercion looked like um, in a medical space. And I was just like, uh, this is sick. Because every time she was having a contraction, a nurse would come in and say, oh, are you wanting that epidural yet? And she would say no. And then they would be like, you're going to want it, you know? And they just kept doing that, but only when she was having contractions. Um, and she regrettably got an epidural um, and cried about it after her baby was born, actually, because the baby was born like less than an hour later. And I was just like, that was gross to watch. And I didn't know what to do because I'm a photographer um, and I need to make myself small because photographers are usually not allowed into birth rooms. So I left that birth and I sat for a couple of days and I was just like, okay, how, how can I help pregnant people immediately without going to eight years worth of school to become a midwife? Um, and I came across the word doula and I'd never seen the word. I'd never heard of it. And I was just like, oh, I'm a, I'm a doula already. Like, cause like my sisters had kids, like my aunts have had kids and I always show up for everybody like postpartum. I'm always there. I'm like, what do you need? So I've been a doula. So as I started this journey into becoming a doula, I said something about it to my grandmother um, and she started freaking out with joy, of course. And she was like, oh my God, your great, great grandmother, she was a midwife in Honduras. And uh, I was just like, oh my God, why has nobody said anything to me about this? And um, so I found out then that I was fourth uh, generation birth worker. And that's why it was so like natural and innate for me to be a help. And being a, a doula also fully aligns with the preservation of legacy at its like, at the core. And I take pictures of people's births now as I help them birth their children. Um, and it all just makes sense together. How have you shared what you're doing? You know, because birth is so personal. And I assume that a lot of folks maybe don't want their photos shared. So how have you mm -hmm. been able to use your social media platform and your networks to share about what you're doing and why it's important and how it comes back to this preservation of legacy that that obviously is so needed because you didn't even know that your great-grandmother was a birth worker. 
I guess now, as I go through our family, like, albums, I'm finding more photos of my Awalita Faustina and, like, her holding babies and, like, her looking like she embodies, like, somebody that will let you know about yourself, but somebody that will also nurture you, which I really enjoy because I'm the same way. As far as, like, social media and, like, how I get my work out there and stuff like that, first of all, I never share any birth photos, stories without explicit permission from parents. And I think that everybody is on the same, like, same page when it comes to sharing black and brown births where it's just like no we need to see more of this because I didn't know this was possible for me I didn't know I could have a water birth or I didn't know I could have a birth that wasn't traumatic I didn't know like and if I saw these things online it would have made it easier for me the visibility is what's important and for a lot of black and brown people erasure is like heavy and deep Um, and we're in America so we know what that looks like on October 14th You are helping to facilitate a workshop that was titled by something that you said while we were in a meeting, which is who's on your face. So do you want to talk a little bit about the workshop and um, just that idea of, you know, kind of that legacy or lineage and how Mm -hmm. that comes through in a visual format as an artist? I was like, you know, maybe we can do something about like, you know, who's on your face? Um, Because I look like my grandmother. I also look like my great, great grandmother. Um, And I was just like, these these people live on my face and I love them. And you can see the gifts that they've left behind. Right. And I just think it's really important um, for us to remember, like where we've come from. Um, And sometimes it can be really um, it can be painful to remember those things. But it's also really nice to puzzle piece things together um, and learn about yourself. Like I've not ever walked so heavily in purpose before I knew that my abuelita Faustina was a midwife and that that's why it made so much sense for me to do this work. Um, And I just love like taking pictures of people and then comparing them to their parents or their grandparents. I'm like, look, you got this person's nose and you have this person's eyes. And then like to go a step further, like what ancestral gifts do you think you have from these people? The ancestral gifts that I've been given is the gift to never block my throat chakra. That's number one. I'm going to say what I need to say. I'm going to ask for what I need and I'm going to receive it. I have the ability to witness people in ways that... um that's really special and I'm like great we can do a workshop and ask people these kinds of questions like where do you come from and like what are the good things that you've taken from your ancestors and what are the you know some of the unsavory things because we have unsavory things we're people um and that's okay too um we will on the 14th from five to six we'll be doing some quick portrait sessions but folks can bring photos of themselves photos of their relatives and we'll also have some magazines and some other things folks can pull from and work and collage you know talking about a visual representation of what you're talking about what are not just the features that we've received but some of those gifts and some of the parts of ourselves that maybe we've had to work through Mm -hmm. um, and and come to terms with so after that you are going to be joining uh, women picturing revolution for a book talk Mm -hmm. um, and a discussion about your work as a photographer and as a birth doula um, and their experience working with photographers um, who are looking at um, uh, what black motherhood means and how it's represented. And so can you talk a little bit more about maybe your reaction to the book and why this conversation, you know, is important to be happening and how your perspective is is going to add to that? Yeah. So I, first of all, the book is phenomenal. 
I will start there. But that book is is so fun because I am an interactive reader. So there are a lot of things quoted, a lot of documentaries mentioned in there. So I've been like pausing and like, oh, I'm going to go watch this 20 minute documentary. Oh, I'm going to go read this other article that they're referring to. So it's been a really fun for me to like dive into this book um, and it be interactive for me as a reader. And the book talks about all of the things that I am currently learning, working through, working on um, as far as black motherhood is concerned, um, policing of black bodies and erasure of black women, black mothers, and all of the negative stereotypes that have been placed on us. The conversation is important. It completely aligns with my work because we're talking about photography, mothering or parenting, um, and stopping erasure and making sure that people understand like there's different ways um, to see people. Um, But yeah, this book is great and I can't get enough of it and I read it every day and trying to get through. (laughs) Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Jayana, thank you so much for sharing more about your work. This is KP Holler reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. See you later. So you can see uh, Jayana LaFontaine's uh, photography stuff this uh, Saturday at the Sanctuary. Um, the workshop will begin uh, at 5 p.m. and then there will be a panel discussion uh, at 7. And it's been pointed out to me, if you want to go find our election watch stories, go to mediacentuary.org. There's a big red bar in the, the middle of the homepage. And we end tonight's show with Andreas Cunliffe's conversation with Jessica Bowen of Troy Savings Music Bank Hall about their Kaleidoscape musical genre, Whiplash, which starts on October 14th. Troy Savings Bank Music Hall brings us a sampling of local musical artists in a program considered to be a musical genre whiplash. Here we speak with the creator of this event. We're with Jessica Bowen, who's the Director of Education and Outreach for the Troy Music Hall. You've come up with this amazing idea for October 14th called Kaleidoscope. Yeah, it was sort of a project born out of wanting the local artist community and the local arts-supporting community, music lovers uh, in the area, to get to experience the hall on the artist side in a more intimate way and on the audience side in a little bit more of uh, a unique audience experience. So it was built kind of on those two fundamental ideas to welcome the artist community and welcome people to explore the space in a new way. It's sort of like using the building as, as, a, as an instrument. Yeah, that was part of the sort of artistic prompts that we gave we gave the artists that we commissioned. Um, we worked with Oregon Colossal, Sam and Sophia, who are wonderful, to help us commission the the artists. And those artists that we are working with did receive a prompt that was very much along those lines of, you know, exploring a little bit of the history of the space, but also exploring the acoustic of the space. And they're sort of inviting them to take what they see in the space and use that to create. Yes, artists are using that, taking that in, in various different ways. It's an amazing group of people. So far, you've got Buzzy Buggy Jive. Um, yeah, Sam Torres, of course, is, you know, his music kind of plays more in the the acoustic of the space in a more direct way than 
Sarah Ayers, when she's come into the hall, she's been using her time to observe different architectural facets of the space and utilize that in her music. So all of this exploratory work that the artists have been doing will be part of the work that they create in the space and premiered on that day. It's an amazing group of people. So far, you've got Buzzy Buggy Jive. He is just the most charismatic musician and person. <laughs> His music, of course, is, you know, sort of rooted in rock and blues, and he just approaches it from such a soulful character within himself. Um, so he's going to be putting together a tune that he'll be playing uh, solo. And I believe that his, uh, a little spoiler, is based on an experience he had here seeing one of his favorite artists. So I'm very excited about his work. Sarah Ayers, how would you explain her work? I think that Sarah is doing some of the most unique compositional writing in the area. I would initially, you know, liken her to artists such as Vienna Tang and, and people of that nature. She's She just writes these beautiful compositions with electronic and layered vocals. Her work is just so unique, and I'm so excited to see what she comes up with. Then I have Osei. Ozi. Ozi, thank you. He is a hip-hop artist, so he, he writes and creates and, and raps. Um, so he's kind of a, you know, an all-in-one artist there. But yeah, he does a little bit of everything. Amazing. Zen and yeah, the yeah. Winter Folk. Yeah, yeah. Zen is a beautiful folk singer-songwriter. And with her band, it's just kind of a, a magical <laughs> experience. It's going to be great. <laughs> and then you've got Sam Torres. Yeah, yeah. Sam's work is, I think the body of work that he'll he'll be showcasing here is definitely influenced by jazz, influenced by sort of contemporary compositional style, but it's very unique. Um, so I would say he's, you know, saxophone with electronics. Um, definitely we'll hear an exploration of the acoustics from, from him. Then we've got E-Block. Mm-hmm. Yeah, E-Block is a lot of fun. Uh, they're uh, like R&B, funk, um, very soulful. Really, really great group. Now, are they, <laughs> how is this going to be presented? I think it's all linked together somehow, but how is it, is it each person takes the stage? Are they in different locations throughout? Are they playing at different times? What's, what's, what are we going to expect? Yeah, so of course, um, from my description, it's it's a little bit of uh, musical genre whiplash. Of course, we're featuring a little bit of a little bit of everything, a little bit of everyone, um, and that was that was in ways on purpose was to sort of give a sampling of so many of the amazing artists in all genres that we have in the capital region. So all of those artists will take the stage that night. And the program will feature each artist premiere of the work that they've been composing throughout the, the past few months, um, which will be interwoven and sort of strung together with compositions that were commissioned by Patrick Burke. He's a wonderful local composer. And his interlude music will be heard in between each of those artists we just spoke about to sort of weave all of that together. Um, and as the performance goes on, we'll hear from each artist and the work that they created. We'll have those interludes. And then the end of the, the night will culminate in a final act, so to speak, that will incorporate all of these artists as well as additional artists from the area that will be special guests to join us for a final act. So it'll be 
everybody on stage and there's even an opportunity for audience participation. So the idea will be that everybody in the space is creating music at the end. And I see your name is is on there as a performing. Mm-hmm. I mentioned the uh, the interludes by uh, Patrick Burke um, are scored for a very small chamber ensemble. So I, uh, as well as amazing musicians, Nick Terriello on percussion and Sophia Sibiel-Vostek on piano, will be playing those those interludes. So you'll hear from us. Um, maybe not on the stage, but from other places performing those those interludes. Oh, fantastic. This sounds like such a good time. Real fun. It's like a festival, a, a, a wonderful festival. Yeah, it's like a mini festival <laughs> in one of <laughs> How did you come up with this? It's great. You know, it was really born out of my time here. And, you know, I've been very blessed you know, to have the opportunity to not only work in such an amazing space and be able to create programming in this amazing space, but also perform in this space. And one of my favorite things is connecting with the community. And in a lot of ways, you know, whether it's on the audience side, there's a lot of people in the Troy community that haven't had the experience of being here. And there's also a lot of artists that haven't had the opportunity to perform here. So this project, again, was kind of born out of that want to have others to have that opportunity as well to to be in this space and, and creating and performing in a beautiful building that's in their backyard. Exactly. So you're really opening up the Troy Music Hall to more of the general public. Right. That's exactly exactly the goal here. What time on the 14th is this occurring? Yeah, so a little bit earlier show for us. It's 6 p.m. Okay. On on the 14th. Now, why did you decide to make it a bit earlier? Is it going to be a little bit longer? Not necessarily. Uh, the program will be between 60 and 90 minutes. Each artist will be premiering their work and have about 10 to 12 minutes. So stringing that all together, we'll probably hit that 90-minute mark. Um, but the goal was just to, again, you know, keep it accessible for everybody. So families who might want to bring kids can come earlier. It's not going to be too late of the night, but it's also not a midday thing for people who might have to, to work or things like that. The time was a little bit in consideration of who we want to welcome into the space and what might be best suited for, for scheduling purposes on that front. The link to tickets is in our calendar right on our website. So just look for Kaleidoscape and purchase tickets online. You can also come into our box office, of course. Hours are 10 to 3, Monday through Friday. So we also wanted to keep this a very accessible event for folks. So if there's any financial barrier, we also have a free ticket bank that people can elect to, to utilize um, at their discretion. Super. That's wonderful. Well, I'm really looking forward to the 14th. It's on my calendar. Awesome. Yeah, we're so excited about it. So please feel free to, to invite your friends. <laughs> this has been Andrea Cunliffe for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, speaking with Jessica Bowen, Director of Education and Outreach for the Troy Savings Bank Music Hall. And that was about the Kaleidoscope musical genre whiplash with seven uh, different artists. And that's this uh, Saturday, October 14th, starting at 6 p.m. Ooh, happens to be the same night from that uh, story just before that with our book talk and workshop. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed the episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. 
And I'm Mark Dunley, our engineer uh, is Joan Eason. Uh, we want to thank the other volunteers who made today's episode possible, including EP, Elizabeth Press, and Andrea Cumliffe. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.